Well, thank you for joining us today. It's uh, great to have you, all of you who are also joining us online, and uh, for those of you who, who are outside under the tent. Uh, it's hard to believe that we are now in the fall, and we're only less than two months away from Christmas. Uh, so time this year has gone by very, very quickly. Uh, you know, as, if you're joining us the first time today, we've been in a series called God versus uh, Satan. And some of you may be wondering why we decided to do this uh, series in the first place, and I wanted to tell you why. Um, as you may know, I love uh, history, and uh, recently I came across an historical event that I think illustrates why we decided to teach you what the Bible has to say about our enemy, uh, the devil. And so uh, I want to tell you what this story is about, and, uh, and you're going to absolutely love this, all right? So stay with me. You're going you're to love this. So as you know, during World War II, Hitler swept through Europe, just toppling one nation after the other. In the early 1940s, Hitler turned his sights to North Africa because of the Suez Canal. He, whoever could control the Suez Canal could control the flow of oil and goods throughout that region. Here's a close-up map of the Suez Canal. Now, even though the canal was located in Egypt, it was under the control of the British. And so Hitler had to take it away from the British. So that first attempt was made by actually Mussolini, who was Hitler's ally. So Mussolini went in there and tried to take away the Suez Canal from the British, but he couldn't. He was rebuffed by British troops. And so Hitler dispatched one of his very best generals, Erwin Rommel, in there to get the job done. This is Rommel right here. But then after a bitter fight, uh, Rommel also failed to secure the Suez Canal. And in fact, he was chased out of Egypt all the way across North Africa to Tunisia, some 1,500 miles away. <clears throat> and this is where Rommel regrouped and reinforcements arrived just in time for him to begin a fight. He received 300 Panzer tanks or Panther tanks hundreds of anti-tank weapons, and 100,000 troops. Meanwhile, Americans sent in a force from Morocco, Algiers, somewhere in that area. They landed their troops in that area, and the Americans had 400 Sherman tanks, 100 anti-tank destroyers, and 70,000 troops. And that led to a confrontation between the Germans and the Americans uh, in the Kasserine Pass there in Tunisia. Now, even though the Americans had 100 more tanks than the Germans, the Panzer was far superior to the American Sherman. And the Panzer was better armored, it had more firepower, and it showed. The battle in the Kasserine Pass resulted in the stunning loss for the Americans. Hundreds of US troops were killed. 183 of the Sherman tanks, American tanks, were destroyed. That's nearly half of what they had compared to the loss of only 20 German tanks. It was the first major defeat in the war for the Americans. With the US licking its wounds, Rommel turned his attention to the British Army, the British Eighth Army that was gathered in Medanin in eastern Tunisia. And so he focused on them, headed down there to take out the Brits there. But once again, the Nazis were beaten back. With nowhere to go, the Germans retreated back toward the Kasserine Pass. Meanwhile, the Americans had regrouped under the command of a new leader, General George Patton. This is Patton here on the right. It was Patton's 
job to transform the American weak, feeble, fighting soldiers into a fighting machine. And so he did. He went in there. He re-energized the troops. And then Patton decided to set a trap for Rommel. On March 23rd, 1943, the Germans began advancing like an iron juggernaut, determined to drive a stake right through the heart of the American position. And for 12 horrific hours, they duked it out. They battled it out. And the losses were immense on both sides. But in the end, the Americans won a clear and decisive victory over Rommel and all of his soldiers, 250,000 of them surrendered to the Americans. A quarter of a million Nazi soldiers surrendered to the Americans on that day. Now, here's what I want to get to. You're going to love this. During the thick of battle, during the heat of battle, it was said that Patton, when he saw that the Americans were going to win, when he saw that the Germans were in retreat, he shouted from a perch overlooking the battlefield. He shouted these words, I read your book, Rommel. I read your book. In fact, that scene was depicted in the movie Patton, uh, which won an Academy Award for Best Picture in 1971, when actor George C. Scott, who played Patton, exclaimed, I read your book, Rommel. I read your book. Now, here's what Patton was referring to. In 1937, several years before they had their clash, Rommel published a book titled Infantry Attacks in which he detailed his military strategies for war. You can get the book today on Amazon and it's in English. But Infantry Attacks was Rommel's playbook and Patton got a hold of it, had it translated into English, he read it, he studied it so that he can get into the head of his adversary. So when Patton went to war against him, he knew exactly how Rommel thought. He knew exactly what to expect. He knew exactly how Rommel would fight. He knew what his strategies would be. He could anticipate Rommel's next move. And that's why Patton was able to defeat him at the Kasserine Pass. Isn't that great? If you want to know why we're doing this series, it is so that you will know your enemy. It is so that you can get into his head, you can anticipate his moves, you will know what his strategies are so that you can have victory over the devil. That's why we're doing this series. Now, the devil doesn't have a playbook. He's smarter than Rommel. He would never put his strategies in writing, but God did. God did that for us. He gave it to us in the Bible. This is God's playbook, and in God's playbook are all the strategies that the devil uses against us. And if we can get into this playbook, then we can understand who our enemy is and we can defeat him. So today, I want to take you into the devil's mind and help you to understand what he's thinking, how he attacks, so you can be ready. I've titled this message, The Devil's Playbook. And I don't know about you, but I am so pumped up about what I learned and what I'm about to, to teach you. So grab your Bible, have a pad of paper handy so you can take notes, and uh, you can also track the message online on our app. And I want to begin with a word of prayer. And um, as we pray, I want to just ask you to keep a, a couple of folks in mind. You know, this week we lost um, two really special ladies, Ellen uh, Isobe and Alan, Alice Takahashi, really 
special ladies in our church. And I know that those, uh, their family members, uh, Ellen's daughter, Debbie Sugimoto, attends our church. Uh, Alice led a small group. My mom, my mom was in that small group. And I know they're reeling. And then, and then in addition to that, Kathy Lai, who's here today, she lost her mom last week as well. And so uh, let's begin our time in, in, in praying and just asking God to touch each one of these families. I, I know that, you know, all three of these ladies uh, love the Lord, and I know they're in God's presence today in heaven. They're more alive than they've ever been. But that, and that certainly helps lessen the sting of death for their families, but it's still very, very difficult to be without loved ones. So let's, let's keep them in our prayers as we begin our time today. Okay, so let's pray. Well, Father, thank you so much for the church. Thank you, Father, so much for the opportunity to gather and to hear your word. And Lord, as we come together as a family today, in our hearts and our thoughts um, are with Kathy, are with Alice's family, with, with uh, Debbie and Glenn, who lost their mom, Ellen. And Father, we just want to ask that you would extend your comfort and touch to each one of their family members and, to, and really to all those who who knew them. I know Alice had such a huge impact on the lives of so many ladies in our church. And Father, the loss of these three ladies, just, just devastating for the family members. So Father, will you touch them and comfort them? And thank you, God, that each one of them had a faith in you that uh, allowed them to be taken into your presence the moment their heart stopped beating here on earth. Father, thank you for the promise of heaven. And, and thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you gave us a playbook in which you informed us of all the things that our enemy is up to, that we might be prepared and that we might have victory over him. So today, God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that you would inspire us through your word. And I pray that you'd use this vessel to communicate your truth clearly. So thank you, Father. We, we ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. A number of years ago, Pastor David Jeremiah wrote a book called God and You. And he wrote something in the book that is about the devil that I think will interest you. Uh, it sure caught my attention. Here's what he wrote. If you could sneak into Satan's office, wherever that might be, and take a peek into his files, you might be surprised to find a file folder with your name on it. I'm not exaggerating. He keeps a file on you, and inside that file are all the strategies he's tried on you, the ones that have worked and the ones that have failed. He doesn't waste his time with the ones that don't work anymore. Instead, he uses variations on the strategies that have caused you to stumble in the past. As long as they keep working, he keeps using them. Somewhere in that file cabinet, there's a file labeled Jeremiah, David. And in this file, I wouldn't be surprised at all if there was a notation that read something like this. Subject may be prone to discouragement, especially if he becomes weary, overly weary. This has worked several times before and seems a promising method of attack. Suggestions. Make sure he stays very busy, overcommitted, and physically tired. And at all costs, keep him from extended times of Bible reading and prayer. Je David Jeremiah went on. So what is Satan's strategy for me? He looks for ways to discourage me and, if possible, cause me some depression. He will use whatever people, means, or circumstances it takes to achieve his goal. 
It's the same for you. Maybe your file says, frequently tempted to gossip, or quick temper, or prone to coveting and jealousy, or weak in the area of lust. Don't kid yourselves. He knows very well where your liabilities lie. It's all in his file. Ooh. I'm not sure if the devil has a file with your name on it, but I'm sure of this, that he knows who you are. He knows who we are, and he knows what our weaknesses are. And he wants to use our weaknesses against us in order to bring us down. And he's working his plan 24-7. Here's what the Apostle Paul said about this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. He wrote, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, we're going to talk about the armor of God in a couple weeks, but let me just focus on the schemes of the devil. Notice that. We need to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Paul said that Satan is a schemer. The Greek word for schemes is methodeia. It's where we get the word method. And the word here is plural, not singular. So it's methods, not method. And methodeia refers to orderly, logical steps that you take to achieve a particular end. And the word suggests a deliberate planning. Not a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants kind of thing, but a, but a purposeful, well-thought-out plan. In the scriptures, methodea is always used with a negative connotation. Not a positive one, but a negative connotation. And the negative connotation implies that methodea is crafty, it's cunning, and deceptive. And thus, what Paul meant when he said that the devil is a schemer is this. That it means that he has mapped out, and I'm going to write this up here for you, he has mapped out a deliberate, orderly, and logical plan that is crafty, cunning, and deceptive in nature, and it is designed to take you out. That's what he's done. That's what it means by the devil is a schemer. He has mapped out a deliberate, orderly, and logical plan that is crafty, cunning, and deceptive in nature in order to take you out. So what are his methodea? Well, he has quite a few of them, and I want to give you just four of them to start with this morning. First, number one, if you want to write this one down, he blinds unbelievers to the truth. He blinds unbelievers to the truth. I saw this in a way that I'd never seen it before when I went to Japan for the very first time in 2014 with Pastor Greg. You see, scattered throughout Japan are these temples, thousands of temples and shrines, to their more than 8 million gods. You see, the Japanese don't believe just in Buddha, but they, because of the Shinto religion, they combine the two, and their religion is basically a, a hybrid of, of both of these religions. They also have more than 8 million gods. Here's a photo I took of the Sensoji Temple in the heart of Tokyo, which is estimated to be around 1,400 years old. And as you can see, people are lined up to go inside. Now, I found the backstory to the temple, and I I thought I'd share with you. Legend has it, it's very fascinating, but this is the legend, all right? So just remember that. Legend has it that two brothers were fishing on the banks of the nearby Sumida River when they discovered a small statue that had come into their net. And they didn't know what it was, so they grabbed the, the statue and they threw it back into the river. 
Well, the statue ended back up in their net. So they got the statue and they threw it back out in the river and it ended back up in their net. And they said, well, maybe we better keep it. And so they kept the statue and they took it home. And when they showed it to the villagers, one of the villagers said, that's a, that's a statue of Buddha. And so they decided to enshrine it in a glass hut. Well, over time, the statue earned a reputation for having the power to answer prayers. And so the brothers turned their house into a temple. Well, one day, a Buddhist priest came to do some work on their temple, and he claimed that he had a dream in which he was told not to allow, quote, reckless homage, unquote, of the statue. Don't allow reckless homage of the statue. And so the statue was hidden inside the temple so that no one could see it. And it is hidden to this day. If you go to the temple today, you can't find the temple because, or you can't find the statue because it's been hidden. The original statue has been hidden. Well, in 857 AD, another Buddhist priest visited the temple and he came to the temple. And he says, hey, where's the statue? Well, there was no statue. It was hidden. So he decided to carve another statue. He carved out another Buddhist, a Buddhist statue and that was a statue that you'll see today if you went to that temple. That's the one he carved out what, 1,100 years ago, 1,200 years ago. The Sensoji Temple is one of the most widely visited religious sites in the entire world today. Before the pandemic, 30 million people would go there every single year to worship their God. After we were in Tokyo, we visited a place called Enoshima, not too far from uh, Yokohama. It's an island. We walked the island. We came across a, a shrine where people were lined up to worship Eugene, the dragon god. Here's a picture I took of people going to worship the dragon god. And here's a close-up of the dragon. If you can't see, it's right up on the top. And as I said, Japanese pray to more than 8 million gods, and among them is the dragon god. And they also pray to the tree god and the storm god and the rice god and the moon god and the sun god and the lightning god and the storm god and the fertility god and the business god and they even have a toilet god and it absolutely broke our hearts to see how devoted they are to their gods to their gods that cannot see to their gods that cannot hear to their gods that cannot speak and it made me wonder how is it that over more than a thousand years hundreds of millions perhaps billions of people have believed that a statue or a tree or a dragon or a grain of rice or the moon or the wind or a toilet can answer their prayers. How did it get to that? In one of the parks we visited, I saw someone bow and offer prayers before a shrine. And I wondered what's in the shrine that he would bow and offer prayers to it. And so I went up after he left it. I went up and took a picture of it. And here's what was inside the shrine. Again, a, a stone statue made out of rock, I believe, all wrapped up in red as if it was Christmas. How is it that people go to the park every day to pray to this idol? It's because they've been spiritually blinded to the truth by the devil. Here's what the Apostle Paul said about this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. He said, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The devil is described here as the God of this world. The Greek word for world is ion, and it means a space of time. It's also, also translated into the word age. 
And so some, uh, some translations will say that Satan is the god of this age. Our translation says Satan is the god of this world, but he's Satan is the god of this age. Here's what that means according to New Testament scholar Richard Trench. It means that the devil controls all of the, quote, what Richard Trent's called, all of the floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations at any time current in the world. He controls it all. In other words, Satan is the one who calls the shots in the world. He calls all of the shots. He drives the political and religious agenda and conversations all around the globe. He is the one who shapes the culture here in the United States of America and in the Middle East and in Asia and in Africa and Latin America and Europe and in every country in the world. He shapes the culture. Not Hollywood, not Washington, not Mark Zuckerberg, not Amazon, not Netflix, but the devil. Now, he may certainly, he can certainly use those instruments for his purposes, but it is the devil who is behind everything. And he's all about one thing. He's all about one thing. The devil's singular mission on earth is to keep people from Jesus and out of heaven. That's what he's all about. And he has worked his, his plan brilliantly. He has worked it brilliantly so that continents, entire continents, are under his control. 1 John 5, 19, the next verse, says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He's got the whole world under his thumb. And so the first strategy of the devil is to blind people to the truth of the word of God. You know, when Joshua Harris was only 23 years old, he wrote a book titled I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which was about love and relationships. And, and in the book, he encouraged young people uh, to make good choices. And then he followed it up with another book uh, in 2004, no, a, little bit, a few years later. And then in 2004, at the age of 30 years old, he became the senior pastor of a mega church in Maryland. That was Joshua Harris. And Joshua became famous, and he became popular, and he was a popular speaker and counselor and writer. And he influenced thousands of people, thousands. When 2019, it was just a couple years ago, he announced that he and his wife were separating. And that was followed by a second announcement in which he said this, and I'll put it up here for you. He wrote, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Some of you might remember the story when it broke because it was big news. It made, it made national headlines because the pastor of a mega church had fallen away from the faith, was no longer a Christian. Let me tell you another story. When Marty Sampson was still just a teenager, he started singing with a worship band called Hillsong in Australia. He was such a prolific songwriter and musician and singer that they began to feature him in all of their best-selling albums. You would recognize his songs. You would know them immediately. And then in 2019, same year, after more than 20 years as a worship leader for Hillsong, he posted the following uh, statement on Instagram. 
And he said this, to the church, and all these caps are his, to the church of Jesus Christ, I forgive you and I love you. I got tears running down my face because it's so true. I adore you Christians. I love you so much. That's all. It was amazing being one of you, but I'm not anymore. And with that, he was gone. No longer a Christ follower. Harris and Samson aren't the only ones who have fallen away from Jesus. Evangelist Ray Comfort claims that 80 to 90% of all those who make a commitment to Christ, 80 to 90% of them fall away from the faith. That means out of every 100 people, only 10 to 20 will follow Christ for the rest of their lives. The other 80 to 90 will fall away from the faith. And um, this is heartbreaking. In fact, you probably know, you probably know a bunch of people who have fallen away from the faith. Maybe they were in your youth group. Maybe they were in your small group. Maybe they came to church with you, but no longer. They have fallen away from the faith. Let me show you how the devil does that. Let me show you how he gets people to fall away from the faith. You remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? Great story. It happened in the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve. And after he created Adam and Eve, he, he told them that they could eat from any tree in the garden except for one tree. You can eat from any tree you want, right? Have you, help yourself. But there's one tree, right? You cannot eat the fruit from that tree. It was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let me show it to you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Or, uh, yeah, verse 16. 2.16 says, And the Lord God commanded the, the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. All right, so there he said it right there. Don't eat from this tree, right? Don't eat from this tree except for that one tree. You could, don't eat from that one tree. Then the devil showed up. He showed up in the form of a certain serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And here's what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, get this part. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see what's going on here? The devil launches a two-pronged attack at Eve trying to get her to doubt God. And first he does it by trying to get her to doubt his word. Take a look at the question again. Did God actually say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? It's a rhetorical question. Did God actually say that? And when Satan asked the question, he implied that God didn't say that. He didn't say that. And of course, we know that he did. We just read it in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. But he tried to deceive her into thinking that he didn't say that. And then a few years, a few verses later, Satan has the audacity to contradict God. And he did so right to Eve's face when he said to her in Genesis 3, 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Well, what did God say would happen if you ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It said that you shall surely die. And now he contradicts her, contradicts the Lord, and says to the woman, you shall not surely die. He just lied. And so she went and ate from that tree. And she got Adam to do the same thing. You see, that's what the devil does. He deceives. He lies and he deceives. Revelation 12, 9, John, John called him the deceiver of the whole world. I'll just put that up here for you. We're not going to talk about this much today. We're, we're going to come back to it later on. But Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. 
and he deceives in order to get us to doubt God's word. He doesn't want anyone to believe that this is God's word. He doesn't want anyone to believe what God's word says about who God is. He doesn't want anyone to believe what the Bible says about who Jesus is, that he was the son of God, that he died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. He doesn't want anyone to believe those things. He doesn't want anyone to believe that there's a real hell and that there's a real heaven. In fact, I recently, I, you know, I heard about some, some pastors who said, no hell, there's no such thing as a hell. Pastors say that. And then he doesn't want us to believe that there's a real heaven that, and that the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ, the only way. He doesn't want anyone to believe what the Bible says about marriage and that it is between one man and one woman. He doesn't want anyone to believe what the Bible says about how he created us male and female. Someone who doesn't believe in the Bible is Dr. Serene Jones. She's the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York. It's a non, Union Theological Seminary is a non-denominational Christian seminary, one of the oldest seminaries in our country. Recently, I came across an article um, which quoted some of the things she said about some of the following topics. And I'll put them up here for you. With regard to the birth of Christ, she said, I find the virgin birth a bizarre claim. It has nothing to do with Jesus' message. When asked about the crucifixion, she said, crucifixion is not something that God is orchestrating from upstairs. The pervasive idea of an abusive Godfather who sends his own kid to the cross so God could forgive people is nuts. In regard to the resurrection, she said, when you look to the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. That's what it's all about, right? It's an empty tomb. And she says, and those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. Wow. And then when she was asked what happens to people after they die, Jones responded, I don't know. There may be something. There may be nothing. My faith is not tied to some divine promise about the afterlife. Wow, really? And she's the president of a so-called Christian seminary that is training up men and women to go into ministry. Just earlier this month, the seminary tweeted a bunch of them gathering together to confess their sins to plants. I couldn't believe it. I saw the tweet myself, and I was like, no, this can't be possible. Confess their sins to, to plants. You know, and the, and the reason I share this with you, I don't want to enjoy calling anybody out, but I, the reason I share this with you is because I love God's word. And I love God's word, and I love you. And I, and I want so much for you to understand what's going on out there. I want so much for you to understand what Satan is doing out there, trying to twist things and lie and deceive in order to get you to fall away from your faith. And Christ followers, unfortunately, are falling away from God's word in spades today. I mean, they are falling away from the truth of the word of God in spades. That's the second strategy. He wants people to doubt God's word. That's the second strategy. Now take a look at Genesis 3.1 again. And I want you to take a look at that question again that the devil asked Eve. And I want you to imagine for a moment how he might have asked it. Perhaps sarcastically, perhaps incredulously. I believe that Satan the con artist asked the question in such a way as to create suspicion and doubt in even Eve's mind. It might have sounded like this. He didn't actually say that, did he? Why would God tell you that you can't eat from that tree? Well, why would he deprive you of those pleasures? 
I can't, believe, I can't believe he would say that. He couldn't have said that. I mean, I can just imagine the devil saying it in those terms. And why would he say that? Because he wants to deceive. And he wants to, he wants to stir up doubts about God's goodness. That's the other one, right? That's his third strategy. He wants people to doubt God's goodness. He wants us to doubt that he's good. You know, I don't think I've ever shared this publicly, but around 2010, I experienced a, a crisis of faith. Um, in the years leading up to that, we had lost a number of people in our church who had become very dear to us. Uh, Vic, Adam, Joyce, Herb. And so, and we prayed so hard for them. We prayed so hard for them that God would heal them. But God took them home. And I actually began to doubt God's goodness and question whether he even heard my prayers. Have you ever doubted God's goodness? Have you ever doubted that God loves you? I'm sure you have. I think we all have. We, we tend to doubt God when, when we go through tough times. That's when we tend to doubt God. It might happen if you lose your spouse, you lose your husband or your wife. It might happen if you lose your mom or your dad. It might happen if the doctor tells you that your child's got leukemia. It might happen when you're in a car accident and the doctor tells you you're gonna be paralyzed for the rest of your life. Or maybe you're single and with each passing year, the chances that you'll get married grow slimmer and slimmer and slimmer and you wonder where God is and you begin to doubt his goodness. It might happen when your spouse cheats on you or when a parent walks out on your life and you wonder where God is. It might happen when you experience one setback after the other over and over and over again, like as somebody told me last night, like a whack-a-mole. And you begin to doubt. You begin to worry God, you wonder where God is and you wonder if he's good and if he still loves you. You know, I'm convinced that Satan has a hand in bringing about some of the afflictions that we experience, not all of them. Sometimes we bring them on ourselves. Sometimes it just bad things happen to us because we live in a fallen world. But sometimes I believe Satan deliberately will orchestrate things to bring affliction upon us in order that he might get us to doubt God's goodness. You know, one of the greatest men in the Bible was John the Baptist. All right, remember him? Now listen to this story. This is so good. You're going to love this story, right? John the Baptist was this fiery, bold preacher who proclaimed a message of repentance. I mean, he, he was the guy who, when he saw Jesus coming toward him at the Jordan River, he was the guy that proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. And then he baptized Jesus in the Jordan. That was the same guy. That was John the Baptist. And whenever John saw sin, he rebuked the sin and the sinner. Well, one day, the ruler of Galilee, a guy named Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas went to visit his brother, half-brother Philip, in Rome. So he went to visit his brother Philip in Rome, and while he was there, he kind of like, oh, boy, your wife's kind of pretty, Herodias. He, he was attracted to her. He was drawn to his brother's wife, his sister-in-law. And you know what he did? He seduced her. And when Herod Antipas returned home to Galilee, he decided, okay, 
I'm divorcing my wife. So he divorced his wife and he decided I'm going to go back and I'm going to get my brother-in-law's, my brother's wife, his sister-in-law, and got her and he married her. And when John the Baptist heard what he did, he didn't post an anonymous rant on one of the social media sites. No, he called the king out in the public square. John the Baptist basically called Herod a dirty, rotten scoundrel for having cheated on his wife and for having cheated on his brother, having stolen his brother's wife. Well, as you can imagine, this didn't go over too well with the king. Herod didn't like that at all. So he got him and he threw him in prison. He threw him in prison, which is located in one of his military citadels called Machairos. Machairos was this outpost situated on a bluff in the Jordanian desert overlooking the Dead Sea. This is all that's left of Machairos today. It'd be kind of cool if when we were there in Israel, when we're there in Israel next April, if we can go visit this place, because we were definitely in the Dead Sea. According to John MacArthur, the prison that John the Baptist was thrown into was basically a pit. You can imagine that it was a pit. It was a big hole. It was dark, it was stifling, it was unventilated, it was no plumbing. And during the summers when the temperature shot up to more than 100 degrees there in the Jordanian desert, I mean, it was, it was unbearable to be in that pit. Well, it was while John the Baptist was in that pit that he began to doubt Jesus. Did you hear what I said? He began to doubt Jesus. He, he was so down in the dumps, so discouraged that he finally sent two of his disciples. He called out to them, hey, you guys, do you hear me up there? Are you there? Can you do something for me? And he asked them, his two disciples, to go to Jesus and ask him this question. Take a look at Luke 7, verse 18 and 19. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord. He said, go to the Lord and ask him this. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? This is crazy. Jesus, are you, are you really the Messiah? Are you the son of God or should we looking for somebody else? Think about that for a minute. This question came directly out of the mouth of the guy who had proclaimed earlier, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now he was asking, are you for real? Are you, are you, are you for real, Jesus? He doubted Jesus. I love this. I love this. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but whenever the New Testament speaks about doubt, it almost always refers to Christ followers. Did you know that? Do you remember what Jesus used to say to all of his disciples? What did he say to all of his disciples? He had a little faith. Come on, guys. Where's your faith? Right? They, all, they, they had faith to follow him. But along the way, you know, where's your faith? Because they were constantly riddled with doubts. There's only one instance in the gospel where the word doubt is used in connection with, with an unbeliever. It's only one, one instance. And I, I, I love this. I think this is so encouraging because it tells me that it is not uncommon for Christ followers to experience doubt. It is not uncommon for us to have doubts about who God is. And not only was John the Baptist's dog with doubt, but he was also, I mean, terribly discouraged, and I would be too. I mean, if, if you're stuck in a pit, the bottom of a pit, and he was there for at least a year, is what we believe, a year. And then they got him out and they cut his head off. But if you were in the pit for a whole year, imagine how 
discouraging that would be. According to John Bloom, who is a writer for an organization called DesiringGod.org, discouragement is by definition a deficit of courage. Discouragement is a deficit of courage. And the reason why we can experience a deficit of courage is because we doubt the power, the presence, and the promises of God. We doubt the power and the presence and the promises of God, especially when we're going through those tough times. I can't even begin to tell you what it was like for me as a single person to watch all my friends get married. And rather than trust in the power and the presence and the promises of God that God would take care of me, that God would provide, I became discouraged. I was so discouraged. I got so discouraged that, you know, I, I started getting wedding invitations, you know, because when you're a young adult, you get all these wedding invitations. Everyone's getting married, right? And I'm the only one not getting married, and everyone's getting married, and I just said, you know, I'm not going to any more weddings. Because every time they do the garter toss, they say, where's Gary Shiohama? Because we know he's out there, and we know he's single. And I'd, I'd hide. I'd leave. I can't even begin to describe what it was like in those early days of the church, of our church, when finances were low and people were scarce and Cheryl and I had to do everything. And rather than believe in the, the power and the, pr- the presence and the promises of God to get us through and to bless our church, I just grew discouraged. And of course, you all know, you all know what this pandemic has done, has been like for, for adults and for children, for those who've been locked down, for those who have lost loved ones, for those of you who've experienced isolation and separation and, and financial ruin. And so often we have, instead of relying on the power and the promises and the the presence of God, so many people, even in our own church, have experienced anxiety, depression, and discouragement. Maybe you're here today still feeling those things. And do you know who loves every minute of it? The devil. He loves every minute of it. He loves to see us discouraged. He loves to discourage people. It's another one of his strategies he, used to bring, he uses to bring people down. And just like doubt, it is not uncommon for Christ followers to experience discouragement. It is not uncommon for Christians to experience discouragement. Many of the greatest Bible characters experience discouragement, like Moses and Elijah and David and, of course, John the Baptist. And do you remember what John, we just talked about it, but do you remember what John who, the, who John the Baptist turned to when he started to have doubts and he became discouraged? Who did he turn to? He turned to Jesus. He sent his disciples to ask Jesus this question, are you really the Messiah? David and Moses did the same thing. They cried out to the Lord when they became discouraged. You know, and when I went through my crisis of faith, I did the same thing. I didn't know where else to turn to, so I turned to God. And I poured out my heart to him. I I still remember it so clearly. I remember telling God exactly how I felt. I said things like, God, I know you're there, but it doesn't feel like it. God, I know you're good, but it just doesn't feel like it. God, I, I know you answer prayers, but why haven't you answered my prayers? Is, should I even pray? Is it worth praying? So I cried out to him, and I, and I really struggled. And this went on for months. And then the Holy Spirit just began to work. You know, it just began to work. Touched my heart, 
reminded me through his word that he was there. He never left. He's always there. Reminded me through his word that he loved me. Reminded me that he still answers prayer so I can keep praying to him. And eventually, my doubts melted away. You know what I learned from that? When you doubt, when you doubt God, you run to God. When you doubt God, you run to God. And and you don't run from him. It's when you run from God, when you doubt God, when you run from him, that's when you become vulnerable to the schemes of Satan, who will do everything he can at that point to get you to fall away from your faith. So when you have doubts about God, you run to God, not from him. And you know what else I did when I became discouraged? I went to church. I had to because I was the pastor. But um, I went to church. And you know, seriously, I, I came to church, and I'm so glad we had church. And I came to church because I needed to be with people. I needed to be with people so they could encourage me. And they did. So they could encourage me through their words and through their prayers. And I, I came to church. I went to church because worship encouraged me. Even when I was struggling and believing that, the, that God was good, when, I, when we'd sing these songs, sometimes it'd be sitting right where you're at and tears would be just pouring down my face. And so you gotta go to church. And one of the things that we can do at church is to keep each other from falling away. That's what we do. Now, there's a whole lot more that the devil does. There's a whole lot more in his playbook. And we don't have time because we're, we're out of time now. Right? So for the rest of this, you're going to have to come back next week. All right? Come back next week, and I'll give you the rest of it, and hopefully we can finish it all up next week. And then there's still more to talk about in this series. But to close, as I said earlier, I don't know if there's such a thing as a file with your name on it in hell somewhere. But I do know this. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. He blinds their minds to the truth. And he knows you and, and the devil knows you and he knows your weaknesses and he wants you to get, doubt, get you to doubt God's word and he wants you to doubt God's goodness and he wants to discourage you so that you will fall away from the faith. Well, now that you know that, don't let him. Don't let him. Even if you have doubts today, even if you are discouraged today, right, run to God. Run to God and go to church and share your struggles with others so they can encourage you. Let's band together and we'll fight the good fight as a church. Well, let's close our time in prayer. Well, Father, it just excites me to no end to know that you have given us a playbook that, only, that not only tells us how we can have eternal life, but it also tells us how we can be victorious in this life against our enemy. Praise you, Lord. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. Father, this morning we come before you with all of our weaknesses, with all of our doubts, with all of our discouragements, 
Because the reality is that even as your children, we'll battle those things and we'll struggle with those things. But it doesn't have to mean that we have to fall away from you. And so, Lord, will you do a work in us that even when we have hit upon the hardest of times, will you allow us to run to you? Will you draw us back to yourself? And maybe, maybe all of our doubts won't ever be answered. But God, help us to continue to trust and believe that you are good and that you are loving and that you're there for us. Father, we reject the devil's playbook and all the things that he is trying to do to us. And Father, it, 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 it breaks our hearts that what he's done to blind the minds of unbelievers to the truth. Father, we, we, we ask God that you would remove the scales from the eyes of all those who cannot see you today in our own community around the world in Japan and in India and, and throughout Europe and really throughout our own country where you open their eyes to the truth so that they'll see Jesus. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Now that we know what we know, help us to go out there and live for you and be the people you want us to be. Thank you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.